We are looking at the natural law. The Catechism refers to it as the natural moral law, which is a bit of a um, tautology and that it's using two words saying the same thing. The natural law in St. Thomas um, just means the moral law that we can naturally know. So it's not meaning the laws of physics, it's not meaning the laws of nature, um, it means this thing called the natural law, what you can naturally know. So, summarizing to start with. So, we have, what is it, eight pages, ten pages here. I've got two whole lectures dedicated to this. If there were only two topics I wanted you to take out of this course, uh, that would be natural law, what we're looking at today, and the virtue and the passions that we did one lecture ago. Um, so what I'm looking at is one of the pivotal topics and so important that I'm giving you two lectures for it. And two lectures for 10 pages means we're going to go through it fairly slowly. Um, so there are three concepts um, that I'm wanting to explain the relationship between to you today. One is nature, the other is reason, and the other is the law. And by the law in this context, I don't mean the law of the government, I don't mean the law of your city, I mean the moral law. Yeah, what, as an ethicist, is kind of the, the law we're really concerned about. Now, what is it that ultimately connects those three things? Well, to state the obvious, the fact they all come from God. So we as Christians worship a God who has revealed himself to be a rational God. So from him proceeds anything we might call reason. Again, our faith tells us, is revealed to us, that he is the creator, that he has made everything, that nature, what we look at with our, our intellect, what we behold, what we comprehend, Nature comes from him. He is a rational being. Everything we are seeking to understand, and most pivotally in this context, ourselves, isn't random. It's made by a rational creator. Therefore, it has a structure, a built-in purpose um, that we can understand, that we can use our reason to understand this thing, nature. When we use our reason to understand this thing, nature, we're able to grasp the moral law that comes from God. So we distinguish between the eternal law in the mind of God and the natural law
in the mind of man. And the natural law in the human mind is just our grasping, our participation rationally in this eternal law in the mind of God. Mapping this out a bit more, nature tells us what a thing is. Reason can tell us, to use the language of St. Thomas, things like it is fitting. So if you are subject to God, then it is fitting that you should show him honour. The law, simply what is commanded. So, thou shalt, and so forth. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and so forth. Okay, there's a little more I'm going to put up there later, but I'm going to pause our thinking on the board there. Um, basic point of what we're looking at today, fairly clear what we're running through. So we're looking at today what reason can figure out. We're not looking at what the Bible can tell you. So a topic that is forbidden for use, um, this lecture and the next, is the Bible. You may not quote a saint, you may not quote the tradition, you can only say what a reasonable person can deduce, a man with an intellect, what the philosophy department can do. Yeah, that's what this thing, natural law. What's the ethics that the philosophy department is capable of figuring out? That's what we call the natural law. Yeah. This all uh, presupposes that we believe that universe that as it exists right now is exactly the way God intended. So you have to believe in God, you have to believe in a very intentional creation, because if this was kind of a, a random, chaotic uh, you know, evolution, yeah. um, then our nature really wouldn't have any moral, ethical significance, right? It's an interesting question. So can we deduce that the cosmos is ordered and purposeful without knowing there's a God that that order and purpose comes from? We won't cover that at a catechism level course, but an author, Janet Smith, that you'll look at when you do sexual morality with me, she argues that the very notion of evolution implies that everything has a place, a purpose, a telos, an end. So in every particular environment, 
a rabbit will have ears of a certain size and legs of a certain size that suit its environment. Uh, the evolution adapts every species for its environment so that it has a purpose, a function, a telos geared to its environment. So therefore it has a purpose, function, telos. Human person likewise is not random, that he finds his fulfillment according to the kind of being that he is. Um, that is a bit what, beyond what we're looking at today, but that's kind of something we're going to have to take as an implicit assumption at this stage. So I said nature coming from the creator. I'd say at this level, of course, we can take that as a dogma of faith. So how do we know that from Revelation? But the Catechism also tells us that the reasonable person can deduce that God exists, can deduce that there is creation and creator. The philosophy department knows that God's there. It doesn't know as much about him as the Bible does, but it knows God's real. Does that kind of answer the question? The, the, it's a good question. Um, let's come back to that with some other things we're going to look at. Um, because you're also asking the question whether this universe is as God intended. Actually, it's fallen. It's not as God originally made it. Um, so how has that affected our grasp of what goes on? That, that's something we'll touch on later. Any other initial questions before we start looking at some details? Okay, but to repeat that basic concept, what the philosophy department can figure out about right and wrong, about how to behave, about the laws from whatever God there is, that's what we call the natural law. Okay, going through the things on the top page there, the natural law. What is, I give at the top there, my definition of the natural law. This isn't the catechism, this is kind of my summary. I say the natural law is the knowledge of right and wrong that we have by the light of unaided reason. So the phrase unaided reason, I then clarify, can know right and wrong. What does it mean? It means reasoning without the aid of the Bible and the Christian tradition. Yeah, that most of the time when we do our reasoning, we are on all kinds of implicit levels drawing on that Christian tradition we're a part of in the West. Um, but strictly speaking, what we mean when we use the word reason in this context is what philosophy can figure out without the aid of the Bible and the tradition. Another way of phrasing it, as I put in bold, that the natural law is the moral law available to the Gentiles, i.e. the knowledge of morality accessible without supernatural revelation. Uh, Adam, can you read the quote from Romans there? 
Adam, not brother Adam. So there's a phrase there, written on their hearts. That, in a sense, is the, the key thing with the natural law. We say every human being is written on their hearts. If it's written on your heart, you're capable of figuring it out. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy for you to figure it out. It doesn't mean everybody figures it out. But you're capable of figuring it out. It's written on your heart. Now, next, ask the question, why do we need supernatural revelation? So if the Gentiles are able to figure it out without the Bible, without the Lord Jesus coming down, without a couple thousand years of prophets gradually explaining everything before the Lord Jesus comes down, why on earth do we have supernatural revelation? Brother Adam, can you read? Because without revelation, those truths about God, which human reason could have discovered, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. So let's break that down. Only known by a few, after a long time, mixed with many errors. So the kind of classic example to think of this is the Greek philosophers of Athens. How many of them knew what was what? Only a few that they were capable of knowing it, the human person. But in reality, when we look at human history, kind of only a few seem to end up doing so. After a long time, how long did it take the philosophers to figure out all the things Aristotle and Plato and Socrates? And they didn't sit down in an afternoon and figure it out. It took a long time. And then mixed with errors. Um, so some of us were joking about um, what Aristotle says about magnanimity at, over dinner the other day. Um, there are some Aristotle absolutely amazing, but some weird stuff in there as well. Uh, he's capable of figuring it out, but that doesn't mean he does so perfectly. So although we're capable without the Bible and tradition and everything, in order to make it easy for you to figure it out, for everybody to have this truth available, without errors mixed in, supernatural revelation comes to clear it all up. But you are capable of knowing it. Um, does that make sense as a point? Okay, I'm going to unpack that a bit more later, but... Okay, the bottom half of the first page there, I'm just going to clarify my terms here. Nature and reason. Nature, reason, law. What do we mean by those three words in this context? So reason. I say, what man can know even without the Bible and tradition and supernatural revelation? I say reason being the faculty proper to humans, the defining faculty natural to man. Or as I also put it, what the philosophy department can figure out. This is what we mean by reason. St. Thomas specifies practical reason, that what we're concerned with here is reason about doing stuff, 
um, in this context we're not really we don't really care about theoretical reason like the math department does okay law what do you mean by that law what is decreed so say law isn't just what is in accord with reason but what is decreed as a command and quoting the catechism god has given this light or law at the creation so St. Thomas asked the question, well, if the law has to be decreed, promulgated to be a law, when was the natural law decreed? And the Catechism articulates the, the standard answer, at creation. With nature, the natural law is promulgated. So law is something commanded. If someone runs around saying, well, I think the rector thinks such and such, therefore we should do that, that's different from the rector has said we must do such and such. Yeah, a command, that's what law means. Not just this is sensible or wise. What is decreed? And then a bit more technically, nature, what do we mean? I say what things are, how God made him, and in particular what the human person is, i.e. human nature. Summarizing a bit of metaphysics, I say natural law means acting in accord with our human nature. So, as we said, nature always acts for some end. Generally speaking, what that means is if we map this out in terms of fulfillment, nature, anything, is always seeking its fulfillment. It finds its fulfillment when it reaches its end. And we can phrase that differently by saying that there is a law, there is a command to be fulfilled. So in the book of Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Um, that the, he just hasn't made things to just wither and be miserable and he wants everything to come to fruition be fruitful and multiply whereas i phrased it there a little more philosophically to be fulfilled maybe not <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah okay okay um So we've just defined our terms now. Everyone happy about our terms, what we mean? Okay, let's have some examples. Everything becomes clearer with examples. So over page two. So I've got two examples of a natural law argument on page two. One that's a kind of valid example, the other that's a bogus example, an, ex an example of how not to do natural law reasoning. So first, the example there is from St. Thomas, as I uh, 
footnote there. The claim being religion is natural to humans. And by religion, St. Thomas is meaning the practice of worship in an organized kind of liturgical fashion. Um, and we've got a big block quote there from the Summa, um, but that I think is a good example here. Michael, could you read that quote for us? At all times and among all nations, there has always been the offering of sacrifices. Now that which is observed by all is seemingly natural. Therefore, the offering of sacrifices is of the natural law. Natural reason tells man that he is subject to a higher being. And whatever the superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Now just as in natural things the lower are naturally subject to the higher, so too it is a dictate of natural reason in accordance with man's natural inclination, that he should tender submission and honor, according to his mode, to that which is above man. Now the mode befitting to man is that he should employ sensible signs in order to signify anything, because he derives his knowledge from sensibles. Hence, it is a dictate of natural reason that man should use certain sensibles by offering them to God in sign of the subjection and honor due to him, like those who make certain offerings to their Lord in recognition of his authority. Now this is what we mean by a sacrifice, and consequently the offering of, a sac of sacrifices of the natural law. Okay, who can unpack for me? What we're looking at this for is to try and understand the style of argument St. Thomas is using here. So beyond kind of the details of what he's saying, how is he approaching this? What's his starting point, his argument, anybody? He goes from the general um, in regards to like all human beings and kind of like as his starting point to make his, to kind of relate to anybody that he talks to. And then uh, he talks about, you know, everybody knows that there's some being that's higher than them and there's, it's been shown throughout history that you know we offer sacrifices to this being. Um, okay, Let, let's pause there just before we get too much into the detail. But, but good, John Paul, what were you going to add? He begins with the syllogism, like this is classic Aristotelian logic. Go on. Okay, phrasing it slightly differently. What's he starting from? Experience. Experience, right. He's saying all human beings, we can look at all of them, and reason tells us, what does reason tell us? We look at everybody, every, all human experience, reason tells us what about ourselves? Yes, that which is observed by all is seemingly natural. Uh, Yes, I was thinking more of the specific example, but you're right, that's a really important thing. That which is observed by all, that is natural. What are you going to say? Always wor worship the supernatural. Or that we're the or subject. subject. Okay, very good. Subject. So he's saying, so I use the word subject here. 
everybody realizes that human beings are subject to higher beings, that we are inferior to superior beings. He says, how do we behave an inferior to a superior? Honor. Honor, right. Now, it's interesting to note here, although St. Thomas is saying this, he is actually making an assumption there that, dare I say, an egalitarian, independent-minded minded American might not hold, um, that we show honor to our superiors. That's kind of not a very modern notion. You know, not that long ago, I'd have come into class and someone would have honored the teacher by having a nice shiny red apple waiting there for me. Have any of you honored the teacher that way today? No. Did it even occur to you to honor the teacher that way today? No. Um, but he didn't bring those either, no. Um, so, he, the, I'm going to come back to that notion that actually, even when he thinks he's using something everybody does, sometimes um, that can be a mistaken analysis. But I would say actually what he's pointing to does seem to hold with that first premise. What we observe everywhere does seem to indicate this is what is natural to humanity. Just humans do this. The subject, the inferior, shows honor to the superior. It is fitting. It flows out of what you are. You are subject. It's fitting that you show honor. Yeah. We can only show it with like the power of our intellect. Because we're rational creatures, like obviously, like all the animals are subject to man, but they can't honor man. I'm just trying to think of it in like that regard because they're all lower than us. Yeah. In regard to our nature. Yeah. My pet dog used to, in a certain sense, show me honor. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It kind of does. So th this is a, a thing, more properly speaking, true of, of rational beings. So that's the first step of his reasoning there. Second step, what's this stuff about sensible signs? That there needs to be, I guess, something offered that we've been given. That I'm not sure if he actually says it, but it seems like even in a lot of these primitive religions, there's a recognition that the thing that is responsible for creation and over us has also given us what we have, even if it's only in so much as they created what's here. So like recognizing yeah. them in a material way. In, indeed, I think there's a step even before that, though, he's saying, which is almost so obvious to us that we might not point it out. Is it like we're physical beings, so we have to, so we recognize honor through physical signs? Right. So why do you bring a shiny red apple to the teacher? Because it's the kind of being, we, we're both bodily beings. You do something bodily. You have something bodily that you show. Um, now, 
Hunter was taking that a step further and saying it seems to be pretty much the pattern everywhere in human existence of recognizing that the fruits of the harvest and such come from somewhere so we offer them back to the one who offers them. But I don't think that's actually the argument he's making. The argument he's making here is you are a sensible being therefore you offer sensible signs. So crop offerings, animal offerings, human offerings. Uh, throughout history we see all the religions of the world this has been the pattern and they you might not be thinking, oh, I am a sensible being, therefore I will... But, but just instinctively, that's what, what you are, therefore that's what you are able to do. Okay, I've got a series of five points there in which I'm breaking down some points about his argument there. So point one, I say... He refers to experience at all times, so, so we noted that. Um, and what does he deduce from that? At all times, this shows us what we are, what nature is. Two, he uses reasoning, so the existence of a higher being implies syllogisms, as John Paul indicated. Now more technically, and we won't really unpack that in the these two lectures, but he refers to man's natural inclination. Uh, the inclinations indicate what a thing is, its nature. Inclinations indicate the end a thing is inclined towards. So in a more detailed argument, um, the inclination of something, where it tends to head towards, that tells you something about that thing. Four, he draws on the notion of what is natural to a being such as a human. A human's nature is a lower being and a sensible being. And reason concludes he should show honor by sensible signs. Now, fifth, this is a pivotal point, but he does not refer to Christ as the perfect exemplar of offerings. Yeah, so you as a Christian, if you were to say, why should you show worship? Well, to point to the Lord Jesus on the cross and say, even he makes worship to the Father. That would not be something the philosophy department could point to, because that's drawing on supernatural revelation. So this is an argument a philosopher can make. That's the type of argument he's using here. You note that as a methodological point? He doesn't refer to Jesus. He doesn't refer to, we see all these figures in the Bible doing this. No, he just refers to all human experience, all societies, all history. Reason can deduce what is natural to man. Now in smaller font I say, the existence of a culture that did not offer worship to its God was probably unknown to St. Thomas. However, St. Thomas was aware that some cultures can be so corrupted that they fail to see what is natural. 
For example, he refers to theft as being something that the ancient Germanic tribes did not realize was wrong. Quoting, in some, the reason is perverted by passion or by evil habit or an evil disposition of nature. He would view such a culture as perverse. I just because natural law can be known by all people does not mean it is known by all people. That's going to be a very important distinction I'm going to unpack a bit later. He says the general principles of the natural law are known by all people, but the conclusions and details are not known by all. So having made those comments, any further observations, questions? So all this is indicating the type of, sorry, yeah, Michael. Just this is, I'm running through to try and indicate the type of argument that a natural law argument is. What are you going to say, Michael? Um, why is the natural law harder to know for some people than for others? We'll come on to that later. But um, if you are raised by good parents, then humanly it's easier for you to know what a human is. If you're raised by parents who beat you, who are mean to you, who steal from each other, who are dishonest, then it's hard for you to realize honesty is important, that kindness is important. You're capable of figuring it out, but a bad upbringing can make it very difficult to see what you are capable of seeing. Inclined, but doesn't mean they automatically get there. So the Germanic tribes were capable of knowing theft was wrong, but they didn't. We'll come on to this in a bit, but your very culture can have bad practices and thoughts embedded in it so that a whole group of people can fail to know something that they're capable of knowing. Okay, we will come back to that later because it's an important clarification. But the, one of the key points here, just because you're capable of knowing it doesn't mean you do know it. B, a false argument. And this is an argument you do hear, particularly in some kind of semi-Catholic circles. Or Anyway, so false argument. Homosexual intercourse is natural. And the argument goes like this. Some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex. Some animals can uh, seem to occasionally have homosexual couples. And I have the headline of a few newspaper articles there. Gay penguins steal eggs from straight couples. The love that daren't squawk its name. Um, born again flamingos, two loving daddies. Um, so you know, and what could be more gay than pink flamingos, yeah? Um, so these are some headlines. Why, is the, why are the newspapers running with this? They're trying to make a point that it's natural. Thus, 
homosexual anal, anal intercourse is deemed natural and in accord with the natural law. Now, why is that not a natural law argument? I say, however, natural law does not, does not mean imitating the animals. Sex in humans has a significance beyond that in animals. And thus, this is not a valid natural law argument. To repeat, natural law is not imitating the animals. Natural law is not the laws of nature or the laws of the jungle. Um, yeah, this might be blatantly obvious, and I'm just missing it, but sex in humans has a significance beyond that in the animals. Like, how does natural law take that? Um, natural law can look at humans and see that the bonding of humans to each other um, in a permanent fashion, linked with their bonding physically in sex, is just a consistent phenomenon across all human cultures and societies. It gets expressed differently. So sometimes we find polygamy, sometimes we find multiple spouses in a chain, so to speak. But it always is seen as having a significance in a way that typically in the animals it doesn't have a significance. So in the animal kingdom, swans mating for life is kind of one of the exceptions. Um, in humans, however, we just see that the reverse. When we look at what we are, how important sex is to us, how important raising a family is for humans, um, we can deduce various things that mean sex means more to us than it means to the animals. It has a personal significance that it doesn't have for the animals. Jump on. So, like how our natural distaste for adultery, like seeing it in someone else, is indicative of that. Like I saw in the news, apparently some famous couple was broken up because the husband was cheating on her. Um, and I looked at that and I thought that's absolutely terrible. So, but it's, so that's what's indicative that sex in humans has something greater than there's like relationship associated that in animals there isn't. Yeah, or in animals it's rare. So as I said, you can look to something like the swan, you can find some animals where there is a permanent bond formed in, in a coupling. Generally speaking, that isn't true of the animal kingdom. But when we look at human history, we see the reverse. Actually, somehow that is the typical pattern even though we do find many exceptions or many failures to live out what philosophy, I would be arguing, can show is a stable, more fulfilled pattern that accords with your human nature and that you can figure that out even without knowing the Bible. Page three, let's break this down in terms of a little bit of what we were talking before, how the Germanic tribes, as one example, didn't know that theft was wrong. So the precepts of the natural law. I say St. Thomas's threefold division of the precepts is typically followed. So we have first, what are called the first and common precepts, things everybody knows. 
So St. Thomas contrasts practical reason with speculative reason. What's speculative reason? 2 plus 2 makes 4, geometry, math, logic, speculative reason. Here he's talking about practical reason, reasoning about doing stuff, the precepts, the commands. He says, there are several first indemonstrable principles of speculative reason, thus there are several first precepts of the natural law. Um, Say, so like the first principles of speculative reason, these first precepts are self-evident and indemonstrable. You cannot argue with someone who denies the principle of non-contradiction. You cannot argue with someone who denies the golden rule. Uh, a philosopher, tell me what is the principle of non-contradiction? Nothing cannot be and not be at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and that cannot be proved. It's just self-evident. That's what we mean by the first principles. There are certain things that are so basic, you recognize them, but you can't prove them. But with those as your foundation, you can deduce more specific things. In a similar way, there are certain first precepts, first laws that are so basic, you can recognize them, but you can't prove them. Now, what are those? Um, well, first I say, the first precepts are self-evident. They are written on the heart. They cannot be blotted out of the human heart, but we can fail to observe them. So, some examples then. The first precept of practical reason, St. Thomas phrases it as, good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. That's what we mean by good and evil. Good is what you are to pursue, evil is what you are to avoid. That's a, something you can't prove, it's just self-evident. B, I say other first precepts. I say St. Thomas doesn't offer a complete list of first precepts, but he does give the example, do evil to no man. We might also include the golden rule among the first precepts. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or do to no one what you would not want done to you. Yeah, can you prove that? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? No. It's, but it's something, once articulated, it's impossible to kind of contradict. It's, it's a first principle, a first precept that others can build on in argumentation. And everybody knows those. They can't be blotted out of the heart. Now second, there are what St. Thomas calls secondary precepts or quasi-conclusions of the primary precepts. So these are derived immediately with little consideration from the first precepts. And St. Thomas teaches that the Ten Commandments are among the secondary precepts. Go on and I say these secondary precepts can be blotted out of the human heart by evil persuasions in false argumentation, by vicious customs, and by corrupt habits. Say so thus the ancient Germans did not know that theft was wrong, and the ancient Greeks accepted 
what are euphemistically called unnatural vices, i.e. homosexual intercourse. Now let's um, map that out in a bit more detail here. Three categories. Argumentation, customs, habits. So argumentation, false argumentation, evil persuasions. So if a young boy grows up in a public school in our country today, he is taught that certain things are just normal. He is taught that promiscuity is normal. He is taught that pornography is normal. He is taught that masturbation is healthy. Evil persuasions that he hears just continually as he's growing up, these cloud his ability to know what he is capable of knowing. And so there are many teenage boys who are just utterly ignorant of some real basics of, of sexual morality. So we're saying they're capable of knowing it, but they're also capable by evil persuasion of having that blotted out of their knowledge. Yeah? This makes me think of a really like, concrete example. Like when I was in middle school, they came in and like basically gave us lies. It was like a Christian group, but they gave us lies about like, um, you know, sex facts of not at the time thing you know don't always work out whereas like it would have been a lot easier and like obviously kids nowadays can find out that a lot of that stuff isn't true but like they never thought to explain it in these terms where instead of trying to lie to get people to do the good they don't like present something that's actually edible okay yeah no and I'm sure we'd all have different things of our own experience that we'd be able to point to this way. You're capable of knowing the truth, but false argumentation from others can be a real reason why you never find it out. His second category, vicious customs. So it's possible, not so much in the intellectual argumentation, but just the behavior of the whole society you live in, that certain things are so normally portrayed and practiced that the customs stop you seeing what's right and wrong. So nobody actually ever articulates it or argues for it in an evil persuasion, but again, those customs cause you to not see what's right and wrong. You're capable still, but it becomes very difficult to figure it out. Evil persuasions, vicious customs. Last example, corrupt habits. Your corrupt habits. So this is not the fault of those public school teachers. This is not the fault of the corrupt practices and customs around you in society your own sins by becoming habits cloud your thinking. You become immersed in bad behavior. You start to make excuses for yourself and so forth until you reach a stage where you no longer even see that behavior you once knew was wrong is wrong. So your own 
corrupt habits can cloud your thinking. That can be my donuts. How many donuts that I just get immersed into a bad habit, a corrupt habit, and I lose the ability to measure properly. But all kinds of things with pornography and masturbation, similarly, we can get into a habit where we are no longer thinking clearly enough. So St. Thomas uses the phrase clouding the intellect, that your passions cloud the intellect when they are disordered. You're capable of knowing these things, but you're also, uh, it's possible to have that become very difficult for you to know by these three ways, persuasions, customs around you, or your own habits. Comments here? Yeah. Would you say then that in the modern world, people are less culpable for those things? Definitely, okay. definitely. So this is what this is saying. If it's, well, the first two categories are things from outside of you, therefore it's not your fault. The evil habits, that is your fault. So you reach a stage where you're no longer able to know the truth, but it's your fault you got there. So back to the thing we looked at last lecture it, with knowledge and mortal sin, it can be your own fault you don't know. And in that sense, it be, you are, um, the guilt is imputed to you, to use the phrase of the catechism. Yeah. Um, so the Ten Commandments, so all this is that like you can know by reason, like Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. But once your uh, evil persuasion, all that, the trifecta of evil, just goes into your way of being, into your life, then the Ten Commandments, you're now able to see like the Ten Commandments and they will be need, needed to be introduced. That's why God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses. Uh, start again. Sorry. Um, so the Ten Commandments, for example, yeah. you can deduce those by reason, mm -hmm. correct? Then what was the need of God revealing the Ten Commandments to Moses? Was it because the people of Israel were so corrupt in all of this? Or? What did we say on the first page? Anyone remember? Because this is a good question. We've already answered it, but let's come back to that. Few men would know it would be after a long time, and it would be with errors. Right. So, um, in order that everyone can know it easily and fully and clearly, God at Mount, on Mount Sinai gives it explicitly and clear the Ten Commandments. Um, they could have figured it out, but they didn't. So He gives them the Ten Commandments. And it's a historical curiosity that he gives all that revelation in the midst of the most morally corrupt culture on many levels um, in this regard. So when I teach sexual morality, I make the point that um, 
God brings his chosen people, forms his chosen people, teaches them about sexual morality in the midst of Canaan, when all Canaan and all the surrounding cultures around it are more sexually perverse in terms of child sacrifice, in terms of ritualized prostitution in the temples, um, than almost any of the other religions of the world. Um, so we look at Hinduism, they have a sexual morality fairly close to ours. Why didn't God reveal the truth about family and married life to Jewish chosen people in the midst of something like Hinduism? Well, somehow he wanted that contrast so that the truth would be even clearer. Um, okay, so what have I said here on this page? First precept, there are things everybody knows cannot be blotted out of the heart. There are second precept, secondary precepts, things everyone is capable of knowing with a little bit of reasoning, um, but are also capable of having that blotted out of their heart. Third category, what are called proximate conclusions. Um, these are derived by demonstration from the secondary precepts, and prudence is needed to discern even more remote conclusions. Um, so, cheating in an exam is a sin. Is this a truth known to all? Certainly not. Um, when I studied in Rome, we would sometimes joke with about the Italian nuns that would be in classes with us. Um, good nuns, fully habited, saying their rosaries and whatever, but you'd ask a question, is cheating a sin in the exam? And they'd, of course not. And they'd pull out the sleeve. <laughs> um, that um, in, in various cultures, certain things are just really normal. Um, so more detailed conclusions require more reasoning. Um, that's a slightly tongue-in-cheek example, but it certainly is a true one. Okay, summarizing at the bottom of the page there. Summary of what is known. So St. Thomas says, the general principles of the natural law are known to all people, but the conclusions and details are not known to all. Okay, over the page, page four. Here we've got a couple of block quotes from the Catechism. So now, what's the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the natural law? I quote St. Thomas, all the precepts of the old law are so many parts of the precepts of the Decalogue, i.e. the Ten Commandments. I.e. the Ten Commandments contain all the moral law. Uh, Eric, can you read the first paragraph of the Catechism there? The Ten Commandments belong to God's revelation. At the same time, they teach us the true humanity of man. They bring to light the central duties and therefore indirectly the fundamental rights inherent in the nature of the human person. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. And then qu quoting St. Irenaeus. From the beginning, God had implemented in the hearts of man the precepts of the natural law. Then he wasn't content to remind him of them. This was the Decalogue. So this phrase, a privileged expression of the natural law. It's not a different law, it's just a privileged expression of it. Um, 
It had already been implanted in the heart, the natural law, but he reminds them of it on Mount Sinai. Could you read the, or Francisco, can you read the next one? The commandments of the Decalogue, although accessible to reason alone, i.e. unaided reason, have been revealed to attain a complete and certain understanding of the requirements of the natural law. Sinful humanity needs this revelation. A full explanation of the commandments of the Decalogue became necessary in, a, in the state of sin because the light of reason was obscure and the way had gone astray. Okay, so complete and certain. In order that it should be complete, in order that it should be certain, God on Mount Sinai says everything that he had written in the heart at the beginning of creation. Now, I raise an issue, a problem, I say. How can unaided reason discern that we must keep the Sabbath, the third of the Ten Commandments, if the Sabbath itself is part of revelation? Whereas honoring your parents... Murder, adultery, stealing, lying are more obviously accessible to unaided reason. I note the prohibition against worshipping idols is discernible by reason, but only after reason has discerned the existence of the Creator and that he's of a spiritual nature. So the first three commandments are all about honouring God. So you've got to figure out that there is a God first. But the philosophy department can do that. The philosophy department can know there's a God, know that he is one, know that he is spiritual, know that he's deserving of having you honor him. What about the Sabbath day, though? Anyone give me a... That's a pretty obvious, but yeah, I think that's an important thing to articulate. So the fact that you need rest. Anything else that just kind of the philosopher sh should be able to point out pretty easily. If you believe in God, then you need to have time set to, to worship God. A time set aside, yeah. You don't know it's the Sabbath day, but you know there needs to be a time that's put aside to do that. Any other? That it should be regular. So you might not do it, know a week has seven days, but you can know it should happen on a regular basis. So what in natural law theory we would call the kind of the core of the commandment is known by reason, but the articulation of it, the privileged expression requires um, supernatural revelation on Mount Sinai. Now, are any of you aware, as a point of history, how the Marxists tried to rewrite um, in order to squash any vestige of Christianity from communist Russia? They tried to remove the seven-day week. Um, they did in France. Okay. Um, do you remember? trying to do a 10-day week. And it just didn't work. There's something about the human person that needs seven days, so that the 10-day week didn't work. Um, so can reason figure out seven days? 
maybe there's a glimpse in that example that actually there's something in the structure of our being that needs seven days. The ten day week didn't cut it. Maybe they were just accustomed to the seven day week, so working, working eight days instead of five is a lot. You could say, maybe, yeah. Um, but I just think that's an interesting historical example. Um, a couple of times it's been tried and it hasn't worked. So the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the natural law, we're kind of comfortable with what's going on there. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, reminding the chosen people and through the chosen people, all of humanity ultimately, of what was already revealed at the very dawn of creation. Okay, page five and six. Um, here I'm just saying some things that we kind of have already said. Point one, why do we call it, why are we calling the natural law natural? What do we mean by natural? Point one, the natural law is natural because all people are naturally capable of knowing it. Quoting the Catechism, um, Frank, could you read that quote from us for us? This law is called natural, not in reference to the nature of irrational beings, but because reason which decrees it properly belongs to human nature. Properly belongs to human nature. So birds, I say, are naturally able to fly. Fish are naturally able to swim. Humans are naturally able to know the moral law, right from wrong. And note, not all people achieve what they're naturally capable of, just as a wounded bird might fail to fly, but it is in its nature. And I next bullet point, I say, all the ethical laws of Christianity are thus capable of being known by non-Christians. That's what we're meaning by this. Yeah? Is it natural for a person to be born with, out like a limb? Be born with like faults, I guess, like mentally or whatever, like something that's not complete. We're then going to need to ask what sense of the word natural we're using. Yeah, so the words, it's one of the points I'm going to make later, the word nature and natural can be used equivocally. So, in what sense are we using the word natural? Um, it is natural to a human being to have two legs and two arms and, you know, be complete like this. Um, it's not, it's also common to have humans born with various defects, things that aren't quite the norm. Um, but there being, <coughs> being defects of development doesn't mean there isn't a norm that is the nature that we deduce what a human being is, is about and how he flourishes. Yeah. So it's here that humans are naturally able to know the moral law, i.e. right from wrong. Um, what about the fact that we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is that just because that's changed our nature? Or was that something that existed before Okay, well, you've plucked in a bit of the Bible into a philosophy lecture. I'm just going just gonna to point that out. Um, also, the symbolism 
of what is meant by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could be a long diversion. Um, I don't, ultimately, I don't think that's relevant to this whole field. Your feeling of it being relevant is because it refers to knowledge? Probably. Um, ultimately, it's the experiential knowledge of sin, which is kind of a false gift. You know, there's some things I don't want to have the knowledge of the experience of. Um, the experience of having certain sicknesses, uh, I'm kind of okay not knowing what that feels like. Um, so Adam and Eve did gain knowledge, but it was a, a false gift, so to speak. Um, okay, the last thing before we pause. Um, two. The natural law is natural. Why? Because it accords with our nature. I say the natural law is called natural because the moral law is not an external imposition, but accords with our nature and fulfills us. Hunter, could you read that quote from the Catechism? And note here, the Catechism is quoting a pagan. The Catechism is quoting someone who didn't know the Lord Jesus. The Catechism is quoting a man of reason. For there is a true law, right reason, it is in conformity with nature, is diffused among all men, and is immutable and eternal. So Cicero, as I say, pagan, he was able to figure this out. He knew this. This is an example of the natural law being known by the pagans. Um, Okay, I say, an important consequence, I say, all humans are called to follow the same moral law because they all possess the same human nature. For example, theft, murder, abortion are immoral for all humans of every country, of every culture, for all humans of every era of history. Brother Adam, can you read the next quote from the Catechism? The natural law is immutable and permanent throughout the variations of history subsists under the flux of ideas and customs and supports their progress. The rules that express it remain substantially valid. Even when it is rejected in its very principles, it cannot be destroyed or removed from the heart of man. It always rises again in the life of individuals and societies. Okay, and then Josh. The natural law is written and engraved in the soul of each and every man because it is human reason ordaining him to do good and forbidding him to sin. Okay, we're going to stop there today, but any questions on that last little section I've just read to you? Okay, so next lecture, I'm going to say all of this again to you to try and repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, hope that it goes in. Um, if in between you have your own thoughts and examples, what someone able to know but they don't know, anecdotally, theoretically, um, come ready with some other thoughts and questions next time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be.
to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. From the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.